0: Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Tim Geiger, and I am um, on staff here at Liberty Northeast. You don't see me uh, very frequently because uh, my wife and I actually worship at another church, but I do some work behind the scenes, and it's great every once in a while to uh, be here in your presence and to worship the Lord along with you. So um, we are in the... uh, Second week of a sermon series called The Cultural Creed, where we're looking at different issues that uh, we face every day, different issues that impact how we interact with the culture, how the culture interacts with us, and we have to ask ourselves what the Word of God has to say about these things. And so last week, Pastor Evan talked about Black Lives Matter. How does that intersect with what God's Word says? And today, we're talking about the cultural notion of love is love. And I'm uncertain of the origin of that phrase, love is love. I do know, however, when it became a cultural catchphrase. It was in the the early 2010s, as various states passed legislation that legalized uh, same-sex marriage in the run-up to the landmark 2015 U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, ruling in O'Goberfell versus Hodges, which legalized same-sex marriage nationwide. At that time, back in 2015, I led a national organization that helps people walk in repentance from different kinds of sexual sin, and that organization is called, just for your information, Harvest USA. And I recall the flood of messages, both on traditional and social media, by same-sex advocates and allies, and they said love is love. And I think to them, in context, love and love meant that the federal government had decided that there should be no discrimination among the varied ways in which people formalized their romantic relationships. Love and love meant to them that homosexual love was just as valid and legitimate in the eyes of the government as heterosexual love. And that argument made me very sad back then, and it continues to to this day. It makes me sad because the statement runs contrary to God's design for his image bearers and to his decreed will in his word, the Bible. Now, I'm not only talking about the fact that God names same-sex sexual behavior as sinful but that it essentially argues that human beings have the liberty to pursue whatever kind of sexual fulfillment they desire. It argues that if heterosexual couples have the right to marry, so does every other couple that doesn't fit into the box of heterosexuality. More than that, it argues that God's word is not trustworthy, or at a minimum, that it's imperfect, that it's incomplete. So we're faced with the question, is love, love? Or to put it another way, are all expressions of love good, and are all expressions of love permissible? And as we enter into this question, one thing, two things I'm going to tell you, one is that this is a topical sermon, and the, the passage we just read is a rich, rich passage full of a lot of, of things that we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks talking about. And so just because we're, we're treating this topically, I'm not going to look at every single verse or every single uh, argument that Paul makes in, in that passage. Although I would encourage you to think and pray about how the Lord would have you apply that your life. The second thing is, I I know it's tempting when we think about issues like homosexuality and about same-sex marriage to look at it as a cultural issue and, and, and to look at it more specifically as a culture wars issue. And I would encourage you to resist the temptation to do that. One of the reasons why and, and I'll, I'll um, explore this more throughout the course of the sermon, is that the problem that we're dealing with when we talk about same-sex marriage, same-sex attraction, sexual sin in general, isn't just in the culture out there. To whom did Paul write 1 Corinthians? To the church. He wrote it to Christians. And he wrote it to Christians because Christians were struggling with these issues. Christians were struggling with these questions. And it wasn't just the Christians 2,000 years ago before they had a, uh, a book that they could carry around or a smartphone that had all of God's word on it. We struggle with these things today. And so I would encourage you not to look at this as something that the church needs to stamp out in society, but rather an issue of sanctification, an issue of uh, growing in what it means to be the people of God. And so we're going to look at the question, is love love, using three points. The first is not all love is good. The second is God made us for love. And the third is God's love is good. So the first point, um, not all love is good. So, up until a few years ago, I enjoyed running. And I was never a serious runner, but I, I enjoyed just getting out there and running for two or three miles at a time because of how it made me feel. And I remember about 25 years ago, it was a beautiful spring day. It was a warm spring day, probably in uh, late May or early June. I decided that I was just gonna see how far I could run. And so, I, I remember I lived in Northeast Philadelphia. I uh, drove down to, I think, the art museum, parked my car, and just started running. And it felt good. It was a beautiful day. Uh, the, you know Running for a few miles, you, you begin to feel the endorphins building your system. You begin to feel a peace. Um, your, your muscles feel a little bit tired, but but you feel good. Your, your mind is clear. You're, you're seeing a whole bunch of different things. When, I don't know about you, but when I run, I pray. I, I sing worship songs. I do all kinds of things to, uh, to just put my heart before the Lord. And before I knew how far I had run, uh, I, I, I stopped and I figured out I had run about eight miles, which was great. But then I realized my car was eight miles back that way. So, I had to go back. And by the time I got back to my car, I was, I was aching, I was in pain, I was out of breath, my limbs hurt, it was difficult to walk, let alone run, and it wasn't, wasn't very pleasant. I began to feel you know, instead of that pleasant kind of tired you feel uh, after you've accomplished something that, that you want to get done, it, this this was a bad tired. This was the kind of tired where you were wondering, was I actually going to make it back to the car before I died? <laughs> My legs felt like lead, and I really I uh, was really sore for a couple of days afterward, but that wasn't the worst part, because I had been running without a shirt on. And so I had gotten this really bad sunburn. A little, you know, our new incumbent members, uh, you know, all shared a uh, little fact about themselves. A little fact about me is I burn very easily. If I walk past a microwave, I get a sunburn. Uh, And I got a... Terrible sunburn, and it actually turned into sun poisoning, and I was sick for days. My point is that something that started out f- seeming like it was good, feeling good, became really painful in the end. And that's where the message picks up this morning. The Apostle Paul warns those listening to his letter that some patterns of behavior that felt good in the moment were, are not only contrary to God's design, for his image bearers, but that they have really painful and harmful consequences in the end. And you can't always see those consequences at the beginning. He names that consequence in verse 9. He says that they will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, those who engage in these patterns of behavior and make them into life-defining behaviors and refuse to repent Will forfeit the inheritance that is theirs as sons and daughters of God through Jesus Christ. That's a that's a huge, huge uh, consequence. Paul also warns in the middle of verse nine that these patterns of behavior can be so pleasurable and gratifying that they seem good. Because he says, "Don't be deceived." In other words, don't get caught up in the momentary pleasures and endorphins and happiness that these pleasures bring because there's a real danger. The writer of Proverbs likewise warns us. He says in Proverbs 14, 12, that there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. So think about the list, or if you have your Bible open, look at the list of nine categories of people that Paul lists in verses nine and 10. The sexually immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, the men who practice homosexuality, the thieves, the greedy, the drunkards, the revilers, and the swindlers. There are two things I want us to recognize from this list. First, Paul is an equal opportunity offender. He, he doesn't single out people who engage in same-sex sexual behavior. He calls people who engage in lust, which is the, the word translated at the beginning uh, of the list in verse 9, sexually immoral, people who worship idols, people who engage in extramarital sex, people who steal, people who are greedy, people who drink to excess, people who are overly critical, and people who cheat. He, he puts them all in the same category. And what Paul says is that each category named represents people who have chosen to love something else more than they love God. They've made something else their first love. He's not talking about people who occasionally fall into sin that fits into these categories or those who are tempted to sin in these ways. Rather, Paul describes people who have become so identified with their new first loves that they've changed their name. Now, when when does that happen? Often in our culture. It happens when you get married. And these these people, Paul is implying, have gotten married to their lover. But Paul says, this isn't good for you. This love will actually destroy you if you don't turn from it and return to, to Christ, your first love. That's the first thing to take away from this list in verses 9 and 10, that there's been a love transfer. These are people who have actively turned from the love of God and have chosen to love themselves first and foremost. See, they're not in love with alcohol. They're not in love with sex. They're not in love with Uh, what they can get from cheating or stealing. They're in love with themselves. And here's how. Sexual sin, just going through the, the categories, sexual sin of all types is all about love of self. It asks the question, what can I get out of this to feel better? Idolatry is about love of self. It asks, what will this thing give me that God withholds from me? Stealing is about love of self. It asks, what can I take from someone else to make myself happier? Greed is all about love of self. It asks, how can I get more stuff for me to make myself feel better? Getting drunk is all about love of self. It asks, how can I escape from a world that seems out of control? Reviling is all about love of self. It asks, how can I tear down other people and institutions in order to make myself feel better and justify myself? Swindling is all about love of self. It asks, how can I feel superior to others by cheating them out of what they have? You and I pursue these kinds of things because we want good things for ourselves to the exclusion of everything else. You see, you and I, whether you think you do or not, whether I think I do or not, we fall into this list of nine patterns of behavior that Paul lists in verses 9 and 10. But God wants us to love him first and foremost, not because he needs our love, but because he wants us to enjoy him and to enjoy the good things that he's happy to provide for us. So not all love is good. Not all love is good. The second takeaway is this. Paul's often accused of singling out homosexuality as a worse sin pattern than anything else. And that simply is not the case. Here and in the other two places in his letters where Paul mentions same-sex sexual behavior, he lists it alongside other patterns of sin that are just as bad, just as harmful, just as lethal. They all might feel good for a moment and look good on the surface, but there's a price to pay in the end. There's nothing in Scripture that says that same-sex behavior is worse or has a greater penalty than other kinds of sin. People who engage in same-sex sexual behavior are not worse sinners than anyone else. And to struggle with same-sex attraction is not a sin in and of itself. And so, we are faced with the fact that uh, not only is not all love good, uh, but the wrong kind of love leads to death and destruction. Moving on to the second point, God made us for love. People come up with new books and other content all the time that promise to unlock the secrets of, of living your best life. And I realize this is a very old book, um, but um, I, I grew up with this book in my grandparents' house, my grandparents essentially raised me. And I remember they had this book um, in their living room, and they read it, and I think that they were somehow encouraged by it. It was published in 1952. It's called The Power of Positive Thinking, and it was written by an American minister by the name of Norman Vincent Peale. I don't know if you've heard of him or not, he died, I think, in the mid-80s. What uh, Peel essentially said in his book is that the secret to success in life is visualizing your success and then acting on it. So you had to visualize in your mind what it would look like to be successful. You had to claim the promises of God in order to make, in order to validate your, your desires for success, and then you had to live it out. He said that you were made for success, And success is there for us to enjoy if only we grasp it and believe that it will happen. And I think what that boils down to is the philosophy that God wants us more than anything to be happy. But sometimes the answers we're looking for don't require a new book with new theories. Paul tells us, in verse 15, in 1 Corinthians 6, that our bodies, uh, I'm sorry, the bodies of believers are members of Christ. And, and so what does that mean? He, he goes on to explain. He says, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him." That's verses 15 through 17. There are a couple of different ways in which Paul seems to use the members of the body metaphor to describe our relationship with Christ. In 1 Corinthians 12, and in other places in his letters, um, and even when uh, we received our new in-covenant members today, Pastor Evan uh, alluded to this. Paul calls believers members of the body of Christ to describe us as inseparable parts of a physical body with Christ as the head. When he uses that kind of metaphor, he seems to be emphasizing the fact that we need one another in the body and that we need Christ most of all. Christ is the head of the body. He's the one who directs and gives life to to all of the other members, all the other pieces of the body. But here in verses 15 through 17, Paul uses the members of the body metaphor a little differently. By contrasting being joined to Christ and being joined to a prostitute and then going on to bring in God's description of the sexual union between a husband and wife, the two will become one flesh, Paul tells us that sexual sin is in some way uniquely damaging to the spiritual lives of believers. He essentially says that sexual sin is like committing adultery not only against our human spouses, but against Christ himself. So, why would he say that? The, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is a summary of Christian doctrine written back in the mid 17th century, is kind of like a cliff's notes or, or a blinkist of scripture. And, and here's what it says about the benefits we receive from our union with Christ. It says that the benefits, um, uh, in this, and this is in Elizabethan English, so my apologies, the benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification are the assurance of God's love, the peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, increase of grace, and perseverance therein from hell. The Catechism tells us that we were created and redeemed to experience God's love, a clear conscience, joy in our redemption, grace to live an obedient life, and perseverance in our salvation unto eternal life. These are all God's good gifts to us, not a result of of our works, but the result completely of Christ's work on our behalf. God wants us to enjoy these good works from Him. He wants us to be happy and content in His love and not seek satisfaction someplace else. The Apostle John tells us in first John 4:8 that God is love. And to restate his argument in that verse, if you know God, then you will be so full of love that it will not only satisfy you, but it will flow through you to impact others. Brothers and sisters, we can't minimize the importance of this fact that God delights in us. And just like a human mother or father, he wants to shower us with good things because he loves us. You know, there's a video on Facebook, maybe you've seen it, of a father singing a Tom Petty love song to his newborn baby. The baby, he's playing a guitar. This, this probably is not safe, but the baby is actually on the top of the guitar as he's playing it, um, just trying to fight off sleep. But the video has been viewed uh, like three million times. One of the things that this video captures is the fact that this dad loves his baby so much that he needs to break out in song. And did you know that that is how much, if if you know the Lord, that is how much God loves you? The prophet Zephaniah in the Old Testament tells us this in Zephaniah 3.17, where he says, the Lord your God is mighty in your midst. A mighty one who will save, He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Paul goes on to say, in verse eighteen, that we should flee from sexual immorality for the very fact when we sin, uh, when we sin sexually, whether it's same-sex or heterosexual sin, whether it's just in our minds or uh, in our physical bodies. We we should flee from sexual sin because we do violence and injustice to this beautiful father love that God wants us to experience and, and to rest in and enjoy. You and I were made for love. We were made for the Father's love and we were meant to enjoy it forever. And so the call to turn away from all kinds of sexual sin is a call of love. It's a call of grace. It's a call to repentance in order that we would be restored to God and be able to enjoy him fully. Well, as we wrap up Let's look briefly at the third point, God's love is good. The stark reality is that we're all guilty of all of those sin patterns that are mentioned in verses 9 and 10. And more to the point, we're all guilty of the more basic sin of choosing to love ourselves more than we love God. Many of us struggled with these sins years ago, but... Maybe you've struggled more recently, maybe even this week, maybe even today. The fact is that Christians will continue to struggle with sin and temptation to sin until we see Jesus face to face, because defeating sin, putting sin to death, is not a a once-and-done event. When Christ died on the cross, he destroyed the absolute power of that sin over you. That sin no longer has mastery over you. But brothers and sisters, we, we remember what has felt good to us in the past. And we are, we are very fickle. We have short memories. We go back to things that in the past brought us comfort and brought us uh, the satisfaction of our desires. What then is our hope? If sin separates us from God's love, what can restore us? We'll look back at verse 11. Paul says this And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians to Christians, to people who enjoyed the love of God, but who were enticed. By their sinful hearts to turn back and love themselves first. What comfort does Paul offer? He says that that they and we have been washed. Washed in what? Washed in the blood of Jesus, shed on the cross to atone for our sin. He says that we've been sanctified. Sanctification is a theological word that means that we're being progressively transformed into people who are increasingly able to rest in God's love and to put sin to death. God's Holy Spirit is the one who continually does that in us and for us. He says that we have been justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. To be justified means that you and I have been declared righteous because Jesus has shared his perfect record of righteousness with us. When the Father looks at us, he doesn't look at us as sinners who don't try hard enough. He looks at us as perfectly loved, perfectly righteous sons and daughters. These are benefits that can never be taken away from the one who is in Christ. And so as we close, just a couple of takeaways. One, if, if you feel separated from God's love right now, and there's no one who doesn't feel this from time to time. Some of us feel it on a regular basis. See that as an invitation, a gracious invitation from God. God to draw near to Him. He is with you. He he wants you to experience His love, and He wants you to know that His love is what you were created and redeemed to rest in. His love is what was meant to define you. You were not meant to be called an adulterer, a slanderer, a reviler, you were meant to be called Christian. That is the name that identifies you. And that name can never be taken away. But the second thing is, is is we think about what it looks like to minister to people who struggle sexually, whether it's with same-sex sin or with heterosexual sin. Folks who struggle with sexual sin are folks who live in the very way that uh, the Christians that Paul wrote this letter to were living. They chose to love themselves first. And how does Paul appeal to them? He tells them about God's grace. He encourages them to be in relationship with one another. He himself went to visit them and minister to them and among them and, and befriend them. And that's what our call is in the church today. Our call is to come alongside people who struggle sexually and not to tell them what the law is. They know what the law is, they're running from it. The Bible says that we all have the law of God written on our hearts, we can all tell the difference between right and wrong. What makes a difference is God's grace knowing that God loves us and that love can never be taken away.